everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're in a series called Why Church Discipline, where we're talking about what the church should do when followers of Jesus don't act like Jesus. Today we're talking about what to do when another Christian rips you off or sins against you in some way. As we do, it's important to recognize our cultural default. Maybe an example will help. In the summer of 2019, Popeye's Chicken launched a new chicken sandwich with an advertising and social media campaign that blew up. Their marketing was so successful that people inundated their restaurants to buy them up. Huge lines formed and one restaurant after another ended up selling out. Soon their entire stock nationwide ran out, but not before some angry customers took matters into their own hands. In Texas, for example, Two women, three men pulled up at the drive-thru and they were told they were out of chicken sandwiches. So they left a baby in their SUV and tried to storm the restaurant before a worker locked them out. A man in Tennessee took a more civilized approach. He decided to sue. He demanded $5,000 in damages. He cited the time wasted traveling from one Popeyes to another in search of the sandwich. He claimed to have blown out a tire and damaged his rim in his pursuit of chicken. And then there was a mental duress. He said, I can't get happy. I have this chicken sandwich on my mind. I can't think straight. It just consumes you. Now, I'm going to guess that none of you have ever taken a company to court because they ran out of chicken sandwiches. But I suspect that most of us feel the same kinds of tendencies. When we don't get our own way, our instincts are to fight to win. When people don't back down, we, get, we begin to broadcast our grievances. And even when that doesn't mean the courts, we can give in to threats and escalation. Unfortunately, the same dynamics can even affect people in the church as well. But the Bible presents a completely different way for Christians to resolve their grievances. And it's a part of the process of what's called church discipline. If you have your Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. If you don't have a Bible, you can click on the link for today's passage in the description below. Follow along, starting in 1 Corinthians 6, verse, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you? Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. This is the word of God. Now, the first principle this passage gives is that when another Christian rips you off, take it to church, not to court. It's not that lawyers are always off limits for believers, but we have the Holy Spirit and the family of God to help us deal with our differences. So when another Christian rips you off, our first response should be to take it to church, not to court. 
The Apostle Paul opens a chapter with a question that expresses his outrage. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Fellow Christians in the church at Corinth were having disputes within one another and taking each other to court. There were a couple of things that probably motivated this. The Roman legal system was rooted in status. So for example, a slave couldn't sue his master. A son couldn't sue his father. Social peers could sue each other and elites could sue commoners, but it was a system that privileged the wealthy and there were probably some at Corinth who liked to play with a stacked deck. And taking someone to court wasn't primarily a way to resolve things. It was a way to punish someone. Accusing someone publicly in a trial hurt their reputation, and so revenge was usually what fed the legal battle. And the same is true today. The legal process favors the person who can afford the best lawyer. And if you just want help in working things out, you can usually do that through mediation. If someone wants to punish the other person, that's where the courts get involved. Paul's asking why they can't ask another believer to help them resolve things. Again, in verse 4, he asks, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Believers taking believers to court says that brothers and sisters in Christ are incapable of getting along. It says we can't deal with our own differences. Which is crazy because in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll be given leadership under Jesus to carry out his rule. We'll even have authority over the spiritual realm. That's what's being described in verses 2 and 3, where Paul says, the saints will judge the world, and we are to judge angels. The point is that if Jesus is going to entrust that kind of judgment to us later, surely we should be able to make judgments about simple grievances between believers now. As Paul says in verse 5, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? The message is, that when believers have a problem with one another, they're called to work it out. And if they're at an impasse, they're to look to other believers for help. Now, sometimes revenge tempts us to escalate things the way they did at Corinth. But maybe that's not you. Many Canadians today take a different approach. When you feel that another believer's wronged you, what's your first response? If you're not the type to turn aggressive, chances are you'll just take a walk. We assume the options are fight or flight, and often we opt for the passive-aggressive retreat. When there's a conflict or a disagreement, or someone doesn't get their own way, we often just walk away. We leave the church over our grievances, and then we teach our children through that that the way you deal with your disputes is by walking away angry. If our grievances drove us toward the family of God instead of away from it, another person's sin might be dealt with. Their immaturity might be confronted. But we also might be forced to admit that we had been petty. We might be the ones confronted with the fact that we were wrong. And that's a risk we're often not willing to take. Now, obviously, a passage like this can be misused. Churches have wrongly used this passage to justify dealing with abuse, harassment, or other criminal behavior internally. If there's been abuse, that should always get reported to the police, not just the pastor. But if believers have differences with each other, they should take it to the church, not to the court. 
Trying to punch someone with lawyers is seldom the answer. And fight or flight aren't your only options. Sit down and work it out. And if you can't resolve things yourselves, bring another believer you trust to help you work things through. You might grow. They might grow. And the church might be a little healthier as a result. So the first principle is, when another Christian rips you off, take it to church, not to court. Next, the passage teaches that when another Christian rips you off, choose loss over war. Proving that we're right is never the only option for a follower of Jesus. Winning at all costs doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. When another Christian rips you off, choose loss over war. Hear how Paul approaches this principle in verse 7. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. He's backing up and dealing with the motivation. First century lawsuits were designed to inflict damage on another person. Paul's saying that going to war with someone was already a sign that they'd lost. The word for defeat here is translated as failure in Romans eleven twelve. When you try to attack someone over your differences, that's a moral failure. It's a spiritual defeat. Christians are divided and Satan's won. People who trust in God have different options. For example, Proverbs 20 verse 22 says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. If you've been wronged, trusting God to make it right is an option. Putting your grievance in God's hands is one way to deal with it. We don't always have to get our own way. We don't always have to prove that we're right. What was happening at Corinth was even worse. Not only were they not patiently putting into God's hands and trusting him to resolve things, but they were using the injustice of the legal system to shame their fellow believers. They were using their status in Roman society to use the courts as a weapon to punish people who disagreed with them. And the reputation of the church was ruined in the process. And the same thing happens today. People notice how Christians deal with their differences. They make assessments of the reality of our faith based on how we resp respond when we don't get our own way. Our children are watching. They're making conclusions about our faith by how we deal with our differences. Most non-Christians know enough of Jesus' teachings to realize that his approach to conflict was different than the world's. Jesus' teachings in Matthew 5, verses 39 and 49, for example, have made a deep enough impression that most people are familiar with them. If your children have been raised in Sunday school, they're probably as familiar with them as well. That's where Jesus says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Jesus taught us how to be wronged when we're in the right. He taught us not to always take matters into our own hands. We don't get even. We don't try to win at all costs. As Paul says in verse 7, why not rather, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Now, there are times when Paul appealed to his rights as a Roman citizen. And there were other times when the doors flew open on his unjust imprisonment and he refused to leave. If we're going to follow a savior who gave up his rights rather than fight for them, follow one who healed the ear of the soldier who came to arrest him, 
then there'll be times when we need to just back down. There are times when we need to choose to be wronged, even when we're right. Even Plato said, the really good man will always choose to suffer wrong rather than to do wrong. But Jesus calls us to an even higher standard than Plato. Next time another Christian disagrees with you, or annoys you, or opposes you, or sins against you, I want you to ask yourself the question, does God want me to take a loss on this one? Is this a time to turn the other cheek? That's not how you respond to abuse or corruption. But if we're honest, most of the issues that Christians argue over don't fall into that category at all. Jesus' followers need to learn to choose loss over war. So we've said that when another Christian rips you off, we're to take it to church, not to court, and to choose loss over war. But finally, the passage teaches that we're to seek to save, not to win. Our goal in dealing with differences with other Christians has to be about others, not about us. Trying to beat the other person is never Christian. We need to be motivated by love and focused on the other person's good. When another Christian rips you off, seek to save, not to win. Now, for this part, we need to turn to Jesus' teachings in Matthew 18, on which this chapter in 1 Corinthians is based. Jesus laid down some ground rules for how believers should deal with their differences. Here how he begins in Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, I want you to notice how gracious this encounter is. There's been an offense, but the person has waited to let it cool down. They're not fuming and angry. There's no shouting or edge in their tone. They get alone with the other person, so there's no embarrassment or shame. And notice a goal at the end of the verse. You're trying to redeem a relationship, not win an argument. You want their growth, not their defeat. We said that sometimes this isn't the answer. Sometimes we choose to absorb the other person's sin because the reality is they've probably absorbed plenty of ours. Sinful people in a sinful world are going to hurt and aggravate each other even when they're not trying to. So sometimes we graciously choose to suffer wrong. Often what happens, though, is we just let bitterness develop toward the other person. And that's worse than not saying anything. Hear the warning of Leviticus 19, 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. God wants both of you to grow. So if you're silent and bitter and the other person is oblivious to their sin, nobody's helped. So you go and talk it out. And you do so with gentleness and humility because you may not be seeing the whole picture. You want to hear their side of the story. But maybe the person has sinned and they refuse to deal with it. Maybe it's clear that there's an issue in the person's life, but they aren't willing to let it go. That's when you bring someone else along. Let's go back to Jesus' words in Matthew 18, verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Maybe the person wouldn't listen to you because of you. Maybe your attitude isn't right or your tone is off. 
and the person's responding to that. Or maybe you're not seeing things clearly, or you're not able to explain things in a way that they can hear. By bringing someone else into the mix, it adds objectivity. Now you've got a third party to help assess things and explain things and clarify things. You're not trying to gang up on the person, but see things clearly and redeem the situation. Usually that resolves things. Your hope is that if there's a misunderstanding, it's cleared up. And if there's sin, it's abandoned. Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. Even with objective input and explanation, the person may be more committed to their sin than to reconciliation. It's at that point that the whole church gets involved. Hear Jesus' words in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. As we saw last time, churches are called to remove Christians who refuse to remove their sin. Believers aren't perfect, but they need to be willing to grow. There needs to be a willingness to repent. When someone loves their sin more than the fellowship of the church, they're removed from the church fellowship. And again, even this has the goal of trying to save the person and call them back to the true hope of the gospel. Now, I think that most of us wish that there didn't have to be sermons like this. I kind of wish I didn't have to preach sermons like this. Because I wish that Christians didn't hurt each other. I wish I didn't hurt other Christians and other people didn't hurt me. But the reality is that we do. Sometimes we do it without even realizing it. Sometimes there's just misunderstanding. And sometimes there's sin that we need to deal with. If you're a child of God, he puts you in the family of God to help you grow. And the fact is that when you get close to other people, a certain amount of tension and conflict is unavoidable. If you leave a church every time you have a difference with another, another Christian, you're part of the problem, not the solution. That's how sin goes unaddressed and churches stay immature. God wants us to work it out. And he showed that to us by example. When we sinned against God, he could have just walked away angry. He could have just simmered inside with bitterness towards us. Instead, he sent prophets to show us how we, we had dishonored him. He gave us the scriptures to make it clear how he had turned from him. And he remained patient and committed through it all. Finally, he sent his son to cover our shame and call us to turn from our ways. He did all of that to save us. He wanted to restore the relationship. But for those who refuse to repent, there is no restoration. For those who refuse to change, there is no hope. And maybe you've never seen the church the way that this passage describes. You've just seen your grievances with other Christians as annoyances, not part of God's means to help people grow. Next time a believer sins against you, take it to church, not to court. Invite another Christian to be part of the solution if you can't resolve things yourself. And choose loss over war. Don't make it all about you. We don't always get our own way. Maybe God is calling you to turn the other cheek. It's better to suffer wrong than to do wrong. But don't just bottle up your bitterness either. If there's something that needs to be said, it's better to say it. But say it graciously and with humility. 
Your goal is to help the other person, not win the argument. So try to listen as well as you speak and pray that God will help you both to grow. Let's make our fellowship a little more godly. We're followers of Jesus, so let's act more like Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess our need of you. We confess that the things that we've been talking about, while the principles are helpful and clear, the application is often painful and difficult. It's hard to deal with it hurts against us. It's difficult to deal with our differences. And so we pray for your help. We pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, who sacrificed so much to make peace between us and you. Give us that same spirit of reconciliation. Give us that same commitment to working it out, talking it out. Give us humility and grace and tact. And we pray, Father, that if there are any unresolved grievances, if there are broken relationships between us, if there are sins that need to be absorbed, if there's bitterness that needs to be addressed, if there are relationships that need to be repaired, we pray that you would give us the grace to do that. Lead us and guide us. And may the church of Jesus Christ be a reflection of your glory and your character and the paradise that you're preparing us for. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I hope this message has helped you to see what the church should do when a Christian sins against you. When you're wronged, take it to church, not to court. Choose loss over war and seek to save, not to win. If today's talk has stirred up questions or you'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus, send me an email or leave a comment below. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, leave a comment, share the link, and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless, and see you next time.